Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Um, if you work in manufacturing, if you are a sales rep, if you work on the line, if you are a shop manager, if you are involved in making anything that makes my life easier, um, please stand. Would you guys stand for a moment, men and women? Okay, I'm going to leave you standing for a moment. And um, often uh, your job is considered a grind, and sometimes it's um, not very appreciated. But what I would tell you is um, we understand the difficulties of what you do. We understand what it's like to go into a factory or to be out on the road as a sales rep traveling. And um, I just want to take a moment and pray for you guys. Is that all right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, these men and women and uh, the roles that they play in our community. And uh, it would be my prayer this morning that uh, as they go on Monday to um, the plant or to the office or to their sales calls, that it would be more than just um, what they do to earn a paycheck, but they would also recognize that as they do this, that they are representatives and ambassadors for you. And uh, if they work at Gentex, they're missionaries to Gentex. If they work at Shape or whatever other company that they're involved in, we pray that they would see that as a mission field with hurting and broken people that are in desperate need of the gospel. I pray that you would um, keep them safe, keep them encouraged, and we thank you for what they do on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, do me a favor. We're going to have ushers come down the aisles. They're going to be handing out Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, with you, um, you can pull out your phone, I suppose, and look there or take a Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, please take this as a gift from us. Normally, I tell you where to turn. We are eventually going to find our way to 1 Thessalonians, but I just warn you that it's going to take us a while to get there. Um, during this series that we've been in, a church for Mondays, each week we've started it with a video where somebody's saying 24 hours from now on Monday morning, this is what I'll be doing. And it's been anything from manufacturing to housewives to other different professions. And um, man, I hate to do this to you on the weekend, particularly on a Super Bowl Sunday, but um, I need you to think past today to where you're going to be in 24 hours. So it's, it's Monday morning and the alarm goes off, Okay. And you reach over, you turn your alarm off. What goes through your head? What are the emotions at that moment that are going through your head as you turn your alarm off? I bet there's a lot of different emotions. For some of you, it's like five more days till the weekend. <laughs> you know, that, that's the first waking thought that you have on Monday morning. And you're like, I don't know how I'm going to survive the next five days. Any, does that kind of hit where some of you are at? Yeah, I saw some hands there. Get them down quick if your boss happens to attend also. Um, then there's a whole nother spectrum. I said last night, I said probably some of you are like, I would go to work and I like it so much you wouldn't even have to pay me or any of you like that. And when I said that last night, my son-in-law who works for me raised his hand and I'm thinking, I'm not buying that at all. He's just, you know, that, that's, no. Um, so... I know that there's a lot of different perspectives as it relates to work, but here's the reality. It's an important topic for us because most of us spend about 50% of our waking hours either getting to work, getting home from work, or being engaged in work. It takes up a lot of our time. As we've gone through this series, we've already touched on several facets 
of this idea of how do we take the gospel or the, the church and be the church in our community during the week. And last week, Cal was preaching here and he made the analogy that says coming to church is like breathing in. And we learn from God's word and we sing praises to his name. But when we leave this place, we need to exhale the gospel wherever we go and whoever we come in contact with. That's how the church is designed to operate. And the reality is if we're just the church when we gather inside these walls, if this is the only place where the church operates, it loses its power, it loses its effectiveness, it loses its ability to transform our communities. And quite honestly, I would argue all day that you miss the best part. You lose the joy of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So as you go into your employment, it's important that we talk about this in the context of what it means to be the church. Now, again, in the first week, we said that as you leave this place as a church, we looked at a passage in 1 Peter that says that we are considered high priests. We are representatives wherever we go of Jesus Christ. Last week, Cal said that we were, all of us were called to full-time ministry, that all of us need to approach our lives, not just the pastors here. It's a role of the pastors, and I quote from Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So all of us are to be engaged in full-time ministry. What makes preaching on the topic of, the, of work difficult is not that the Bible lacks clarity in what it says about work. The problem is when I preach on work, I've got to consider all the different ears and perspectives that are listening to the things that I say. The reality is in a room this big, some of you are, are out of balance as it relates to work. You work too much, you're workaholics. Others in this room might be lazy, you'll do anything to avoid work. Some in this room, you go to work and you get paid a ridiculous amount of money for the amount of effort you put in. Others of you are working hard and grinding every day and you hardly make enough to get by. So there's all these different perspectives, all these different ears listening, and the challenge that I've got as I talk on this topic of work is this. How do I encourage the workaholic to slow down without validating the lazy guy? And how do I tell the lazy guy to work harder without encouraging the work of hol the workaholic. So that's my problem. We bring all these different perspectives to the topic. And here's my goal this morning, quite simply. Just for a few minutes, let's lay down our perspective and let's just open God's word and see what God's perspective is as it relates to work. So this morning, the big idea is this. Your identity and your activity are two completely different things. Your identity and your activity are two completely different things. Just to start the message this morning, I want you to know I went online on Friday and I was looking for some quotes, just some motivational quotes on work. I, I didn't find any. Um, I found some humorous quotes on work, and I'll show you a couple of these right now. I'll throw up the first one. I like this one. It says, I don't mind coming to work, but this eight-hour wait to go home is just ridiculous. <laughs> You ever feel that way? Or, or how about this one? I, I'm quitting to, my, to pursue my dream of not working here. It, it, it's sometimes good to have simple dreams as it relates to your job. Would you, would you agree? 
or, or I can kind of relate to this one. Every day I arrive at work with good intentions and great attitude, and then idiots happen. <laughs> so, 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 you know, it, we, we bring in this baggage as we relate to work, and the first thing that I want to do is just spend maybe five minutes on a biblical theology of work, because quite honestly, in the church, this can even be confusing. We, we get confused on how God designed work to operate. So with the big idea being your activity and your identity are two completely different things, that's what we're going to develop this morning. But let me start with just about five minutes on theology. First point is this. Although work is cursed, work is not a curse. Although work is cursed, work is not a curse. I find it interesting that if you were to open your Bible right to the beginning, to the first book of Genesis, and in Genesis, if you were to go to the first chapter, and in the first chapter, if you were going to go to the first verse, Genesis 1.1, you would read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's interesting about that in the context of what we're talking about this morning is before God's holiness is on display, before his justice is on display, before his character, his grace, and his mercy are on display, the first thing that we learn about God is that he is a creator God, that he is at work. And what you find is through the first chapter of Genesis 1, what is on full display about God is the fact that our God is a working God. It says in Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. All of creation is a reflection on the work of God. It goes on in Ephesians 2:10 to say that we are his workmanship. And then it says next, created in Christ, in Christ Jesus for good works. So the idea is that we have a God who has put his work on display in all of his creation and in us. And because Genesis tells us that we're created in the image of God, we are also designed, we are created, we are hardwired to work. God worked in Genesis 1, six days, and then he rested. On the sixth day, he created man. So man was created on the sixth day. He rested, and then immediately in Genesis 2, he was put to work. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. I don't know what your mind's imagination is as it relates to the Garden of Eden, but you need to understand that it didn't cover the whole planet. It was a specific area bordered by rivers, probably located somewhere in a region that today is modern-day Iraq, just based off the rivers that were identified. We don't know exactly where. But the reality is it had borders, and man was put in there to cultivate it, to keep it, to expand it. Because we're in God's image, we were created to work it's interesting, there's this weird American concept that what we want to do is make enough money so that we don't have to work. And, and I, listen, I understand guys working hard and looking forward to their retirement, but I would also encourage you that when you get to the retirement stage, don't check out on doing things that are productive. There's that old saying, all work and no play makes Jack a, I don't know if it makes him dull or not, it makes him sinful. That I know. We're created to work. All play and no work makes Jack sinful and useless. Like, like this idea that we are created to work, to be productive, it's how God designed us to be. Work is cursed, but it's not a curse. And where this gets confusing is when we get to Genesis 3. It says in verse 17, in response to Adam and Eve eating of the fruit, it says, 
And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what we find in the middle of Genesis is because of our sin, work is cursed, it's now difficult, it's broken. And because it's broken, like everything else in creation, sin has a devastating effect on all arenas of creation and culture. It's because of sin that marriage becomes difficult. It's because of sin that families can have their difficulties, that friendships, that relationships, and everything in our creation is broken because of the effects of sin. And so the thing that cures our creation, that releases our creation from bondage to sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole message of scripture, that the anecdote for the fallenness of our creation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we take work which is broken and cursed, but it wasn't how God designed it. We are created for work, but now work is broken. How does the gospel restore work to how God intended? And that's the whole message this morning. I'm just going to give you four ways that the gospel transforms your work for keys to how the gospel interacts with our workplace and redeems what sin is broken. If you're interested in this topic, I will just tell you, I relied very, very heavily this week on a pastor, Tim Keller, who wrote a great book called Every Good Endeavor that is basically a theology of work. If you want to dive into it, I would recommend that book to you, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. But here's the first point this morning. The gospel gives you an identity without which work will sink you. The gospel gives you an identity without which work will sink you. It's interesting, last century, there was a very, very well-known pastor and author by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And David Martin Lloyd-Jones was giving a lecture to a room full of professionals, lawyers, doctors, uh, men of finance in London. And, and he was an guest speaker, and they brought him in because he kind of had an interesting testimony. He was actually a trained medical doctor. He was a physician early in his career, but he had uh, changed careers and become a pastor and led Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years. So he was speaking to a room of businessmen, and he had a big concern for them. And in his lesson, Dangers of the Profession, he, he, he said this. He said, my fear for you men is that if you're not careful... If you're not thinking about this, because this happens subtly and without you really realizing it, your activity will slowly become your identity. And he said, my, my fear for you would be that when your life is done and you have your funeral and there you are in the grave with your tombstone, what your tombstone will say was, born a man, became a doctor. Born a man became a grocer. Born a man became a lawyer. And what will happen is your entire identity will be wrapped up in your activity. This is a warning. It happens all the time. It's interesting. This week, if you've been paying attention to national news, there's been kind of two stories that have consumed the news. Do you know what they are? Depends on what 
channel you watch. And this is always the debate in our house because if my wife has the controls, we're watching a news station. So if we're watching news, what are we, what story are we following? The impeachment trials, right? And in the impeachment trials, what you have is a debate going back and forth and questions being asked and answered. And what's on trial is the legacy or the reputation or the character of our president. If I get to hold the controls, we're on Sports Center, right? And there's a whole other story going on there. What's that story? The, the Kobe story. And, and tragically, Kobe and his daughter were, were killed in a helicopter crash last week along with seven other people. But as you've watched the coverage of the Kobe story, and I watched the tribute at the Laker game on Friday night, it's been very, very interesting to watch how they've given tribute to Kobe. Now, now Kobe was obviously one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived. He was beloved in L.A. and really by basketball players or, or basketball fans around the world. But in the tributes to Kobe, I don't know if you've noticed this, they're doing their best to talk very little about his basketball career. And what they continue to shift the conversation to is all the other facets of Kobe that didn't involve basketball. They talk about Kobe the father or Kobe the husband or Kobe the businessman or Kobe the teammate or Kobe the friend. And I found it interesting that even in this situation, as people reflect on his life, they've taken the focus off of what he accomplished on the court and what they've tried to do is give him tribute for everything else he's done. So even the world responds by saying at the end of the day, it's not what you do in your profession that's important, it's the character of who you are and how you conduct your life both at work and outside of work is what matters long term. Would you agree? Have you noticed that in the coverage? And now obviously Kobe excelled at what he did. When, when I think of our careers, I doubt there's many of us who's Jerseys are going to be retired above your cubicle. I don't think that happens a lot. You know, I, I, I'm not thinking that, I don't think anything's ever going to be hanging from the roof here when I'm done. But, but the reality is if we're not careful in the midst of doing our job, particularly early in our careers when we're trying to show that we're worthy to get our significance, it's very easy for our activity to become our identity. And there's two real fears in that. One is if you're successful in your profession, it's very, very easy to become prideful. I remember early in my career, I graduated from college and I was immediately went to work for a real estate firm in Chicago and I was part of what they called a due diligence team. And anytime we were doing an acquisition, I was part of a team that would be flown to LA or Atlanta, wherever we were buying a property. And I did the computer work while other guys did the market work in different things. But I spent a lot of time early in my career in LA doing building acquisitions kind of in the Beverly Hills, Hollywood, LA area. And I learned two lessons about real estate, kind of the two primary most important lessons about real estate right away. The first most important thing in real estate, many of you know this is location, 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 right? The second most important lesson in real estate, and this is important, you gotta know this, never rent your stuff to a doctor, okay? Never. Now, you'd think that would be a good idea because doctors make a lot of money and they make good tenants. The exact opposite is true. Though they may pay you, it's not worth it because they're so smart in their profession that it was like I was dealing with these doctors on the 
foothills of Beverly Hills in West Hollywood, and they were impossible to deal with because they had this God complex thing going that because they were so good in this area, they believed that they were good in everything. They were so prideful because of their professional achievements that they believed that their hunches carried over into all aspects of life. And it's like, listen, I know you guys understand Botox. I get it, but you're struggling with the lease. Like, like, but, but that's one side of the equation when we let our identity become our activity. Listen, when we're successful, we get consumed by pride. The opposite is also true. When you're unsuccessful, it can destroy you. I have a bunch of grandkids. And because I have a bunch of grandkids, I've become very familiar over the last year, year and a half or so with this movie called The Greatest Showman because my grandkids love to come over and watch it. And it's a story of... Uh, the life of P.T. Barnum, of Barnum and Bailey Circus. And it's interesting, P.T. Barnum in this story, he is fighting to prove himself and to have a level of success because he's basically just a tailor's son. And he struggles early in his career, but then he gets tra- traction and he creates this circus and all of a sudden everybody's coming to his circus and he makes a ton of money and he's very, very successful and he can buy the nice home in the nice neighborhood and As he sits there and he's accomplished everything that he set out to be, he's consumed by the fact that the upper crust in London won't accept him because he runs this circus that's below them. So now he's consumed by not just the acceptance and success of the general population, but now he's got to be accepted by high society, by his critics. So he starts a different act and he begins to tour and he goes to the United States and he basically comes to the brink of throwing away his marriage, his family, and everything that's valuable because he is consumed because he's not considered a success by some. When I left real estate in the mid-80s because that business was tanking, I spent some time, almost two years, trading at the Board of Trade. I was a commodities trader, and um, I wasn't very successful at that. That about crushed me. And, and I don't know where you work or what kind of job you do. And if you're sitting here saying, man, I hardly make anything. My, my, my pay is terrible. Hey, try going to work every day and losing money. That's awful. And, and I'm going into the pit and raising my hand and sending hand signals. And some weeks I make money, but there's other weeks that I come home with way less money than I started. And, you know, you're laying there in bed on Monday morning and the alarm goes off. And you're like, I'm going to make more money if I stay in bed. Like, at least I won't be losing money. And, and, and that was a very, very difficult season because I was letting my activity define my identity. Here's how the gospel intersects with that. Please hear me on this. The gospel roots ourselves and our identity in something that is outside of our own performance. See, see what the gospel tells us is that we are forgiven We are accepted, we are loved by the creator God, not based off anything we have done or haven't done, but based solely on what Jesus Christ has accomplished in our place. And and, and that's important because if you let your work define who you are, if you let any activity define who you are, it means that you are destined to spend your life riding the waves, the, the crest of the waves based off your success and the troughs, of the ways based off your failures. Your identity will go up and down. It's never stable. But when our identity is set on something that's outside of ourselves, on the performance 
of Jesus Christ rather than ourselves. If we let the gospel define who we are, then we're not thrown around by every wave of our own success and failure. The gospel says you are loved not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are, because God, your creator, has valued you beyond what you could ever imagine. And that's something that you can set your identity on that is a value that never changes. It's interesting. Let me take you to a second point here. The gospel gives work dignity without which work will bore you. The gospel gives work dignity without which work will bore you. I've now made it finally to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to be in chapter 4. We'll put on the screen starting in verse 11, but let me read to you from verse 9. It says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need of anything, anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing in, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. First Thessalonians is a good church. It's been faithful. It's, it's loving one another. It is growing in its faith. It is enduring amidst persecution. And he says, listen, though your love to the brothers is commendable, he's encouraging them. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And then verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Okay, so, so why do we work? The key to that is in verse 12, so that we may walk properly before outsiders and not be dependent on no one. So I would just ask you this question. What, what are you trying to accomplish in, in your work as you build your profession? What, what, what Paul has just said, it's so that we're not dependent on others and as a testimony to others. But sadly, the reality for many of us is we find ourselves going to work every day and it is a competition either in our own minds or against the guy that is selling next to us or in the cube next to us and we are basing our self-worth off a comparison to the others that we work with. So, or Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes explains it this way. In Ecclesiastes 4.4 he said, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. After wind. The problem is much of our work and our endeavor is trying to prove our self-worth to others or to ourselves. And this can be tricky. Four or five years ago, there was a young man in our church. He was a um, Bible. Uh, he was in Bible uh, school, and he came to me and he wanted some advice about his future. And our conversation got off to kind of an unusual, interesting start. What he had did was he said, "Hey, to kind of help you understand what I'm thinking, I've written a letter from myself to myself, but the person writing the letter is me five years in the future." I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting because I don't write a lot of letters to myself from the future, but whatever, I'll go along. And so he began to describe what his life looked like in five years and he had finished school and become financially independent because of some business things that he had invented and now he was pastoring a very large church being mentored by nationally known pastors and he was being flown around the country to speak at conferences, and he was making huge inroads for the gospel. As a matter of fact, he had had a huge impact on the life of Taylor Swift and uh, had led her to the Lord, and because of that, now that testimony was really 
spreading the gospel all over. And as I'm listening to this story, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody's explaining something to you that they think you're going to be really impressed by, but you're not. That's kind of what was going on in my head. And I'm thinking, I don't think the God of the universe is saying, if I can just get Taylor Swift, like then the gospel is going to go forward. I'm like, I'm thinking these things in my head. And I took a moment when the kid was done and I explained to him, I said, your letter's more about you than it is about the gospel. And it's more about what you're going to accomplish than the gospel. Hey, maybe this is something that you should aspire to be. Somebody who works quietly, is faithful to his family, and loves the Lord. And, and listen, it would be easy to make fun of that kid. But the reality is, if I compare that kid, I didn't write myself a letter, but I found myself in seasons where I fell victim to the same thing. I, I spent 10 years building a real estate career, and, and it was slow at first. It was, it was difficult, and I was struggling to get traction to do transactions. And then maybe four or five years into it, these transactions began to flow a lot easier. And then as you built a name, deals came to you rather than you searching out deals. And I went on a run where I was doing a lot of deals very, very quickly. I was very successful. And then my father-in-law died in 1999 in the middle of my run. And I found myself lost because what I didn't know, I thought I was doing this to do a good job to honor the Lord in everything I did, but quite honestly, I was doing it to impress somebody else to show him that I was worthy, to show him that I had it. See, see, this can be a tricky thing. And, and, and work, if you understand the way that God created, it can give you a dignity that without which work's going to bore you. Work, any job that you have has dignity if you do it for the Lord. This is the old Puritan work ethic, this idea that any job that you are given, and I know some of you are in careers that, you know, you're not satisfied with, you wish you were doing something else, and here's, I'm, I'm going to give you a key to how to survive that stage of life because I've been there too. If you're in a job that you don't enjoy, here's what I would encourage you to do. Work hard where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Do the best in the cruddy job in your mind that you occupy. Commit the matter to prayer. Okay? Be faithful where you are. And maybe what God's teaching you is contentment in this position. Because if you believe all I need is a little bit more and then I'll be content, that is a lie that is never true. All work has dignity. All work has dignity. And you need to attach your job to your ministry. So when we talk about being a royal priesthood for God or that you are in full-time ministry, what we're trying to do is create, too often we create in our minds this idea is this is our work and then this is our ministry. And if you take the most important thing away from your work, how can it do anything but bore you? But if you view going to the shop or going to the plant tomorrow and that is your mission field and the lives there are, are broken and they need the gospel and you begin to take some risks for the gospel. But like, here's a test. Make it known that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. God's not looking for secret agent, covert agents in the workplace. I did this in real estate, I remember I was working for the Van Campen Group, and I didn't have my title on my card. It was just it was Van Campen Group, David was sent, bond slave of Jesus Christ. That, that made a statement when I handed out that card, 
And I'm telling you, not everyone liked it. Because if I met with a banker, he's like, what's most important to you? Your, your Christianity or the prophets? It created a tension wherever I went because I was making a statement about who I was. And I'm telling you what, when you do those things in your workplace, people are going to notice, people are going to watch how you respond, what you say about your bosses. Listen, work, all work has dignity if we view it as that we are placed there for ministry purposes. And without that, I just believe work will bore you. When when we're lazy, it hinders the gospel. We don't just have 1 Thessalonians that says, hey, work hard so that you're a testimony and can provide. 2 Thessalonians 3 says this, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is strong language, to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that he has received from us. He goes on and says, you know how you're to imitate us. Because when we, were, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but we gave it to you as an example to imitate. For when we are with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. See, see what Paul is saying here in these verses is he's saying, when we work hard and we're not burdening other people with our care, it creates an environment where the gospel is not hindered. You understand that debt hinders. You're serving a different master. You understand that we're given the task of doing our work so that we can be missionaries for Jesus Christ unencumbered. And the simplest tasks, if done well, bring honor and glory to God. Here's a third thing. The gospel gives you a moral compass without which work could corrupt you. The gospel gives you a moral compass without work, which work will corrupt you. Every job that I've done has involved ethical decisions that I've had to make. When, when I was working in securities, trading on the commodity floor, you could only trade specifically in certain hours. But immediately after the bell sounded, there was always a little bit of what they called curbside training where you could just balance accounts. Well, am I going to participate in that? In in real estate, buyer beware, man. You've got to make ethical decisions. As a pastor, am I going to dial it in? Wherever you are, it's interesting. In Ephesians 4.28, this is written to followers of Jesus Christ. Paul gives this instruction. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So why does Paul write to the followers of Jesus Christ, let a thief no longer steal? Do do Christians steal? Think about this for a minute. Do you work the same when the boss is there than when he's not there? Do, do, Do you turn up your effort when you know the boss is watching I think most bosses are smart enough to figure that out. You know that, right? I remember one of my first breaks in my career was all the way back between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. Think about this. I was working that summer at a government lab outside of um, Chicago. It was called Fermilab, and it was kind of a nuclear lab, and scientists from around the world would gather at Fermilab to do uh, 
atomic testing and different things. And, and I know you're thinking like, man, you must have been really something in high school to work at a place like that. I was, I was cutting the grass. So I, I would cut the grass around the village that they had established with all of these houses for when scientists would come in and they lived there for several months. So I was the guy that was cutting the grass around the scientist's village. And I was running a tractor that has a gang mower behind it. Do you guys know what a gang mower is? Probably most of you don't. It's a circular blades and there's probably five or seven of them behind the tractor. And as you go, they spin and they cut the grass. And one day I'm there and I'm driving my tractor and the blades are spinning and this little cat walked out. Well, I don't think I have to go into the details. Um, Russians love their cats. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And, and, and the result of this was I got fired. Okay. And if you're saying, oh, I know it's because I got fired, it's not for the cat, right? And so, so I got fired. Now I had two weeks before I had to go off to college and my father-in-law-to-be looked at me and he said, hey, if you're looking for something to do for two weeks, I got a job for you to do. I'm like, great, love to. He goes, I need you to go wax my plane. So I went over to DuPage County Airport. It was just me in the hangar by myself waxing a corporate jet. And I'm talking turtle wax, wax on, wax off, okay, <laughs> all day 40 hours a week. And I worked hard. And, and the guy that ran the hangar, I didn't know this, but he knew my father-in-law, or my father-in-law, my future father-in-law, and he was telling him about how I was working. I didn't know this. His name was Bob Muckenschnabel. Um, <laughs> great guy, awful name, okay? But Bob Muckenschnabel was on the phone telling my future father-in-law, man, that kid really works hard. And I'll be honest, I don't know if I was actually all that hard a worker. I'm in an airplane hangar by myself with nothing else to do. Like, so I worked. But it was funny, over the years, my father-in-law's impression of me was always, that kid might drive me crazy, but he works hard. Like, like that was instilled right from the beginning. But sometimes we cut corners because we think that our boss isn't looking. And I would just tell you, your boss is smarter than you think because your boss is Jesus Christ. And he's, he's watching. Do we lie? Do we cut corners? One of the lessons that I learned early is it's better to do a good deal with a great partner than a great deal with a bad partner. Will we compromise our convictions? Will your possessions become your God? Psalm 62.10 says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Is my life, is the way that I approach my job, is there a reflection of gratitude because I understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ has redefined me and that I'm a child of the king? Here's a fourth point. The gospel gives you a hope without which work will frustrate you. The gospel gives you a hope that without which work will frustrate you. It's interesting, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes, and in that book, Solomon, who has uh, unbelievable wisdom given to him by God and basically a limitless wealth, begins to pursue different avenues that he believes that will bring him pleasure or joy. And the first thing that he pursues is knowledge. And he's learning everything that he can, he's expanding his wisdom, and at the end of that search, he says, in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He then pursues pleasure, and he just says, 
I'm going to do whatever makes me happy in the moment. And at the end of that pursuit, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, he says, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? He, he proves the old adage that there's nothing sadder in life than a 40-year-old frat boy, right? So he's tried knowledge, he's tried pleasure, and then he turns his attention to work. And at the end of that pursuit, just listen to some of his conclusions. He said, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. He says, so I've put in all of this work, but the reality is everything that I built is dependent on the one who follows me, and I don't know who that guy's going to be. So everything that I've accomplished is always at risk based off who follows. He says in chapter 223, and all their days their work was grief and pain. Even at nights their minds did not rest. See, that's the problem when you're consumed by your job. It never stops. You can't sleep. And then he goes on and says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with its income. This is vanity or this is crazy. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see it with their own eyes? Here's the problem. The more money you make, you're never going to be satisfied. This idea is I'll be content when I get this promotion or make this much more money. He's saying, I went through this entire process. It's not true. And then he goes on and Ecclesiastes 3 and says this about work. He says, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift from God. And I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken away for it. God does it so that people will fear him. In essence, what he's saying is enjoy your job. Give yourself to the work that has been put in front of you and understand that the things that last, the things that matter for eternity's sake are only the things of God. Jesus says this in his, one of his first sermons in Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor Rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in and steal. And then this important phrase for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know Kobe Bryant. I have no insight into the condition of his heart. But what I know is, is he has been eulogized this entire week. And if people have gathered outside the staple centers and written notes and mourned together and celebrated his life and reflected on his life, I doubt he knew last Sunday morning when he woke up that later that day he would be standing before the only opinion that makes any difference. And the reality is so much of our work and our attention is to impress ourselves, impress others to inform opinions. There's one opinion that matters and that's our creator God. Do not let Wealth, position, ease become the thing that you set your affections on. Psalm 62.10, if wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. Let your affections, let the things that matter to you be the things that will last eternally. And I would just close by saying this. There's, in response to this, here's three commitments that we can make as a church, just really simply. These aren't in your notes, but you might want to write them down. Here's the first one. I will work knowing Jesus is my boss. I, I will go to work tomorrow 
recognizing that Jesus is my boss. And, and this isn't profound, but quite honestly, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is you recognize that Jesus is your boss. That the way that you conduct your life, both at work, at home, at church, wherever, Jesus is my boss. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to do the things that please the person that I'm following. I'm going to do the things that please the person who is my master. I will work knowing Jesus is my boss. Here's the second thing. I will wrestle with work and rest so that my life's rhythm pleases Jesus. I don't know what your proclivity is. I don't know if it's to laziness or being a workaholic, but the reality is balancing work and its importance against all the other things that we are called to do, man, it is something that you're going to wrestle with and you won't beat it once and, well, then it's done. I've had to go back and revisit it throughout different courses and seasons of my life when the kids were in the house, when the kids were out of the house and say, am I in balance? Is the way that I'm living my life, is the things that I'm giving my energy to balanced in such a way that it's pleasing to the Lord? We were created for a rhythm of work and rest and neither of those need to consume us, but both of them are important as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then finally, I will allow the work of Jesus to determine my value and identity. Close with this. Colossians 3, verse 23 says, whatever you do, hear that, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, your word is not silent as it relates to our work. And Father, I thank you that um, when I go to work this week, I, I don't miss the blessing that it is to come back to this place and to work with other followers of Jesus Christ trying to push the gospel forward into our community. I, don't let me take that blessing for granted. And my heart goes out for others in this room who were in seasons where, where I've been as well where Work is difficult, man, and you're, you're, you're in an environment that is actually toxic and fights against the gospel, and it's difficult to be a testimony in that place or in that school or in that office. Father, my prayer is simply this, that we would not lose sight of the fact that um, you are king, you are on the throne, you have placed us where we are for the purpose of being a light to make a difference in whatever arena that we work in. Father, give courage where that is needed. Father, I would pray that the gospel would not be something contained within the walls here at Spring Lake or Grand Haven, but that it would be infectious. That as people leave this place, the joy of being a follower of Jesus Christ would be evident wherever they go. Father, we have seen you transform lives in this place, not because of just the proclamation of your word or the worship of Jesus' name, but because of the lives that have gone out of here and have been transformed and people have noticed and seen a difference. Father, we, we desire that. Father, we pray that you would work amongst the people in this room to draw other people in our community that desperately need the gospel closer to you. Father, we thank you that 
You love us. It's in the name of your son we pray.